People of God, we continue in our series in Luke's Gospel, and we are now in the 10th chapter. We will begin reading at verse 1 through verse 24. I need to point out to you that the focus that we will take upon this chapter will be in verses 21 to 24. Will you pray with me? Thy word is truth. Father, our Savior told us that in Holy Scripture, in his high priestly prayer. And though all the world would deny the truth of your word, yet we know that it is true. There is every evidence of divine inspiration within this book, but not only so. It is confirmed to our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit, who has enlightened our minds and enabled us to see what once we did not see when we were lost and dead in trespasses and sins. And so we pray that as we move on in this new year, that thou wilt give to us submission to your word that we will be people who love the book, that we will submit our minds to it, our actions to it, our affections to it, our wills to it, and that you might be pleased to transform us into conformity to the image of your own Son, Jesus Christ. And surely, Father, there must be those here today who have not even yet begun to know what it means to trust in Jesus Christ And we would pray that as we, your people, are fed your word, and as we grow in grace together, that there might be those who will come to faith in Jesus Christ, even this morning, as the word of God is read and proclaimed, and we worship thy name. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray these things earnestly and from the heart. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's word and stand as we read from Luke's gospel, chapter 10, beginning with verse... One, this is the word of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no other on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town, they receive you. Eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet. We wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. 
I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Will you notice again verses 21 and 22? In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So in verse 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Now here's the question. Why? Why did Jesus rejoice in the Holy Spirit? Three times we read in the Bible that Jesus wept. We rarely read in the Bible that Jesus rejoiced. We find it here in Hebrews 12. It speaks of the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. But the emphasis of the Bible is upon the fact that he is the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Yes, surely he rejoiced. He was fully God, but also fully man. But as fully God, assuming human nature, he came into this world that he might die for our sins. And that was constantly upon him as he moves, even in Luke's gospel, toward the cross. So why this unusual reference to the fact that Jesus rejoiced? Well, in order to answer that question, I would like to begin by noting judgment on unbelief in this passage. Judgment on unbelief. We find it especially in verses 12 through 16, 
where Sodom is mentioned, and also Tyre and Sidon and Capernaum. Notice how it's put there in verse 12, I tell you it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town, that town that rejects the witness of the 72, the witness of the church spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cities of Tyre and Sidon are mentioned. Of course, this is, this is where Baal worship had taken place. These were pagan cities. But then he says in verse 15 regarding Capernaum, and you Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now, why is he focusing upon Capernaum? Well, here Jesus cured the centurion's servant. It was here that he healed Peter's mother-in-law, the man with the palsy, raised Jairus' daughter, healed the woman with a flow of blood, opened the eyes of two blind men, cast out a demon from a man who could not speak. Capernaum was a city that sinned against privilege. Jesus had come to Capernaum. Jesus had performed miracles. Jesus had spoken the word of the kingdom. And they sinned against privilege. And so we have here, of course, the reality of the judgment. Today, and of course, it is flatly denied or seriously questioned under the guise of love winning. But God's word teaches that the loving God is also a God of justice and the eternal punishment of those outside of Christ is something that is clearly taught in the scriptures. Without understanding the judgment of God, we cannot understand God's love because Christ came to save those who were under the wrath of God. Nor can we evangelize because evangelism is all altogether about a transition from wrath to grace. In John 3.36, we are told... Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. If you turn to the book of Romans, you find the wrath of God mentioned ten times in that book. If we work our way to the end of the Bible and we come to the book of Revelation, we find that it is the wrath of God that is spoken of, the final judgment and the deliverance of God's people. And that wrath, by the way, is the wrath of the Lamb. It is the wrath of Jesus Christ. And so he speaks of the reality of judgment on sin. But also he speaks of the reality of the greater judgment on some than others. Every sin is deserving of God's infinite displeasure, but some sins are more heinous than others. And that's why we read in verse 14, it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now here is a sobering reality. The more light that shines, the more responsible is the one who remains in darkness. One of the old New Testament scholars, Bingle, said said this, every hearer of the New Testament is either happier or much more wretched than one who lived before Christ. So Capernaum was shown all of these incredible blessings, Christ in their midst. We also are a privileged people And Capernaum sinned against privilege, and he speaks of the reality of unbelief and the reality of judgment on unbelief. 
The reality of unbelief is spoken everywhere in Scripture. We are born in sin. We are under condemnation. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We are incapable of belief on our own apart from the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. Everyone will die in his sin who does not turn to Christ for salvation. But how can he? If we are dead in trespasses and sins, how can we turn to Christ? If we are dead in trespasses and sins, how can we believe? If the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned, how can he have a right estimate of spiritual things? And so sinners must believe to be saved, but the Scriptures also teach very clearly that sinners have no natural ability to do so. So how can a sinner respond to the gospel? That takes us to the second point, the reason that Jesus rejoices. Jesus rejoicing. Verses 21 and 22 that we read just a few moments ago. Now notice in verse 20 that when the 72 have returned, he says to them that they should not rejoice that the demons obey them, but they should rejoice because because their names are written in heaven. And the reason their names are written in heaven, he tells us here. The reason that anyone's name is written in heaven, the reason that anyone can believe the gospel is explained to us in Jesus rejoicing. Jesus rejoices in verses 21 and 22 in God's character. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And he uses the word, I thank. It's a verb used at the opening of many of the Psalms of thanksgiving and praise. Notice also the reference to the Father in these verses and his intimacy with the Father and the language that he uses of God already pointing to his sovereignty, that he is Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus rejoices, in other words, in this passage. He rejoices in the way that the Father administers salvation. And the Father reveals these things not to the wise, not to those who are haughty in their own eyes, but to those who by grace have become, the word that is used here is napios, a baby, napioi, babies. I thank you that you have revealed these. It says little children here in your ESV, but it's really little babies. God's salvation reaches to those who by grace have become little in their own eyes, who by grace have come to realize that they have nothing to offer, but that they are totally dependent and completely in need. Jesus rejoices in the fact that the Father's revelation and authority resides in himself to save lost sinners. Verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. There's mutual knowledge of the Father and the Son, and of course the Holy Spirit in this inner Trinitarian relationship in eternity. The Son knows the Father, the Father knows the Son. 
The Son, as mediator now, as the God-man who has come to redeem sinners, has the authority to grant salvation to whom he will. Knowledge of the Father is in the hands of the Son, and he dispenses that knowledge according to his will. So to sum up, Jesus rejoices. Jesus rejoices because of distinguishing, electing grace. The Father and the Son are sovereign in converting sinners. The gospel is hidden from proud human nature. If our gospel be hid, says the Apostle Paul, it is hid to those who are blinded by the evil one. And so it is hidden from the worldly and the conceited, which is all of us by nature, until God in his sovereign grace opens our eyes so that we can see, opens the ear so that we can hear the gospel, opens our mouths so that we can praise him for what he has done. The Son reveals the Father to those whom he chooses to reveal him. Without grace, no one will see the beauty of the Father. No one will see the glory of the Father or the Son, and he reveals himself to whom he chooses. It is altogether sovereign, free grace. Without divine intervention, none would be saved. And God's reasons for calling are not in us at all. His reasons are within himself. As he looks upon us sinners, we are worthy of condemnation. There is nothing in me or in you that would commend you to God so that he might save us. So why do some believe and others not? If you do not believe, it is because of your sin. If you do believe, it is because God has granted you in his sovereignty, salvation, and saving faith and the ability to know Jesus Christ and to embrace the gospel. How often unregenerate man will hear the gospel and remain unmoved by it, completely unmoved. There's another who hears the gospel, and he is smitten in his heart because he knows he's a sinner, and he cries out for grace. Who makes the difference? The person himself? No. It is God in his goodness that makes the difference. And indeed, if God's grace were not free, and by free we mean it is totally unconstrained by anything that is within us, were it not free, it would not be grace, but a mingling of grace and works, which would destroy the concept and truth of grace altogether. You know, the ultimate degeneration of theology in America, do you know what it is? The ultimate degeneration of theology in America is that it has forgotten that God does all things for his own glory, including the salvation of sinners. Now I want to give some application. This is your third point, some applications of this. The context indicates applications, first of all, to missions. He sends out the 72, and there's much that is spoken here of the sending out of the 72 that I think is preparatory for the mission that he will give to the church before he ascends when he tells us to go into the world and preach the gospel, especially verse 2 when he says the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The point is he has ordained to save his own and he has ordained the means for saving his own and one of those means is prayer. 
What makes us think that our missionaries will be successful? When they go out and they're preaching in a cemetery to lost people, dead in trespasses and sins, what makes you think that our missionaries will be successful? The sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners. In the words of the Puritan Stephen Carnock, God bows the hearts of men by the efficacy of his dominion. What opens the heart of a sinner? Some of you may know the name Henry Atherton. Henry Atherton in the 1920s and 30s was a very well-known minister in Great Britain. Still very well-known. The influence of his ministry is still very great. Henry Atherton, however, was not always a great minister of the gospel and the president of the Sovereign Grace Union in Britain. Henry Atherton was a gambler and a drunkard and a Christ denier. Coming home in a drunken, dissipated state one night, night, his parents had left on the mantle a tract, where will you spend eternity? And Henry Atherton took it and tore it up and threw it in the fire. I don't believe such things, he said. The very next morning, he was walking down the road and met a man, and that man fell down dead at his feet. And God took the message of that tract to his heart, where will you spend eternity? And God saved Henry Atherton's soul. How many will say, I will never submit to him, and God lovingly, omnipotently, irresistibly changes that man's will? God's mission will succeed. He will bless the means that he has ordained, prayer and the preaching of the gospel and the spread of his name. So I think it should be encouraging to us on this second Sunday of a new year that we find in this text that the Son will reveal the Father to whom he will. He sends out the 72, and there is the promise that God's mission in the world will succeed. Don't you find that encouraging? Then also there's another application here. The church in the world, did you notice that he says in verse 3, Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And then he tells his disciples what to do if he goes into a place and they receive the message. And if they don't receive the message, they're to shake the dust off their feet. That there are going to be those who will reject the gospel. Of course they will. We will share in the rejection of the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. God's sovereignty is over the evil of men as well as his grace. And his will will prevail on the behalf of his church. Yes, even when the gospel is rejected. You see, God is not only sovereign when the minister goes out and preaches the gospel in a place to which we may send him and people respond, God is also being successful in his purpose when there are those who do not. For the gospel is a savor of life unto life. Indeed, Paul says, I am, the minister is, a savor of life unto life and of death unto death. Now, that's a heavy thought, isn't it? That the one who preaches the gospel is a savor of life unto life and of death unto death. Right now, as we meet this morning, there's a pastor whose last name is Brunson, who for years has served the Lord in Turkey, and he is now falsely accused of terrorist activity. He's a Presbyterian missionary. He's a Presbyterian minister known to at least some in this congregation. And Jesus said, if the world hate me, it will hate you. And the world is hating this pastor. I ask you, is God sovereign in the life of this pastor in Turkey? 
When he's in jail, is he sovereign? Is God sovereign then too? Was God sovereign when the English martyrs died by being burned at the stake for the gospel? Ridley, Latimer, were, were, was God sovereign when they gave their lives for Jesus? The answer to that is yes, 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 in all things. Mysteriously but truthfully, God is sovereign. Which takes us to another application. God is also sovereign in your life. Because the Son will reveal the Father to whom He chooses. And if you now know the Father, it is because the Son has sovereignly opened your eyes through the work of the Spirit of God and has revealed the Father unto you. Now there may be much that perplexes you and you don't understand what God is doing in your life. This is beyond me. I don't get it. It really hurts and it's painful. I don't understand it. But He does. Your Father does. And it is not only initially when he brings you to Christ that he exercises his sovereignty. It is all through your life that he exercises his sovereignty. And through the hardships of life, he is conforming you to the image of his son and continues to call and to draw you on to your heavenly home. Because not a sparrow falls without him. And what assurance is there for the people of God? And when you are walking faithfully and the worst seems to come, you can say, this too is of the Lord It is for his glory, and it is for my good. Now that's just good biblical, to use church historical language, good biblical old-fashioned Calvinism. It's what the Bible teaches. But I want to go to a fourth point, and this is the one that I really want to stress. You've seen the sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners in this passage. You couldn't read this without twisting the scripture and not see that that's exactly what Jesus means in verses 20 and 21. You've seen the sovereignty of God, right? The question is, and this is the fourth point, do you delight in the sovereignty of God? Now that's the question. Because clearly Jesus delighted in the sovereignty of God. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit because he now reveals as mediator the Father to those whom he chooses to reveal him. So if Jesus delighted in the sovereignty of God, shouldn't your heart rejoice in what rejoices his heart? Now, I'm not asking you, do you acquiesce to the sovereignty of God? I'm not saying, are you just simply resigned to it? Because, oh, I know God is sovereign, I'm just resigned to it. I'm not asking you that. I am asking you, in the midst of even the hard things God brings in your life, do you delight in your sovereign God? I'm asking that question. Now, let me give you an historical in, in, uh, illustration of this that I think is very profound. It has been in my own life. It's very simple, but it's Jonathan Edwards. Most of you know who Jonathan Edwards was, one of the greatest preachers, theologians, philosophers in America, mightily used of God in the Great Awakening. But when he was a boy being brought up in a pastor's home, he hated the sovereignty of God. He despised the sovereignty of God, that God would choose one, not another, that God was sovereign even over the hardships of life. These things were very difficult for him. And from his childhood, his mind was filled with objections to the sovereignty of God. And indeed, this was the point at which his conversion took place, where it came to a crescendo in his life 
And he actually despised and hated the sovereignty of God. And the Holy Spirit opened his heart and his hatred of God's sovereignty was altered by the Holy Spirit and God saved Jonathan Edwards. Then his mind, he says, was wonderfully altered. And it became not only his conviction, but his delightful conviction. And it became exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. And he says at that point in his personal narrative, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. You see the change? From one who hated and despised the God of the Bible and his sovereignty to one who could say it became delightful and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. That's where Paul the Apostle is. You know the book of Romans. You know how that in the book of Romans, in the first 11 chapters, he has been contemplating the sovereignty of grace, justification, predestination, election, all of these things. And then he he can't help himself. He comes to the end of the 11th chapter and he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. That's the Apostle Paul delighting in the character, the attributes, the sovereignty of God. He's wrapped up in wonder and love and praise of this great God. Do you know the revival we need today? I would suspect in many a heart here and surely in the church in America. The revival that we need today is a revival that puts God in our minds and hearts in his rightful place. We need a revival of God-centeredness. We need a revival that dwells upon his Trinitarian nature and his infinite, eternal, and unchangeable character and attributes. We need a revival that is God-centered today. That's the revival that we need and for which I'm praying. So when someone comes for counsel and they sit down with a pastor or perhaps with a biblical counselor and they come and their lives are in shambles, and you say to them, do you delight in God? In the midst of this, are you delighting in the sovereignty of God? Do you delight in God's character and attributes? And they'll, they'll either think, that's it, or they'll think, he's lost his mind. My life is in a shambles. And he's talking about delighting in God. Don't we understand, even though we can't know the whole of it, because who has known the mind of the Lord, surely he has revealed in his word that one of the grand reasons that he is taking you through that experience in your life, faithful believer though you may be, is because he is conforming you to the image of his son and he wants you to learn to delight in him no matter the circumstance? I couldn't give you better counsel at the beginning of a year than to say to you, oh, people of God, learn to delight 
in your sovereign God. A fifth point, I want you to learn from a parallel passage. Now, I try and preach Luke on his own terms, but I think in this case it is wise that we learn from a parallel passage. Now, let me explain. You see, sinners do not know how infinitely offended God is in our disdain for his character and his attributes. And so I want you and me, I want us to be confronted by his character and his attributes. I want you to see that you cannot save yourself, that you are all together in God's hands. For God uses this to show the sinner that we need a savior who was punished in the place of sinners, who said, I will stand where the sinner stands, and that the only answer to the accusations of the justice of a just God can be that there is nothing left to pay or punish because Jesus paid it all. That believing in Christ, the very justice which condemned you will now speak for you as a believer. That justice looks upon every sinner who trusts Christ and says, I am satisfied and I receive this one completely in my son. And so the gospel is preached and I call you to faith in Christ. Here we have the sovereignty of God. The Son reveals the Father to the one to whom he wills to reveal him. And I hold out before you the gospel and I say, come, come and believe in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are twin truths. God is sovereign, but the Bible also teaches that a person may lose his own soul. Ezekiel 18, why will you die, O house of Israel? John 5, Jesus said, and ye will not come to me that you might have life. John 3, 19, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. We prefer our sin to Christ. And that man, if he dies in his sins and goes to hell, let me tell you, he will be miserable there, but he would have been miserable in heaven because heaven is all about holiness and holiness is something he never wanted. So the parallel of which I speak is in Matthew 11, in which these very words essentially that we have read in Luke chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, are spoken by the Savior. But then, at the end of that parallel, he adds this. Having spoken strongly of the sovereignty of God, on the very same passage, he ends with a general gospel call. And Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, and you will find rest unto your souls. Come unto me, Jesus says. Robert Trail, the Puritan, says, at the throne of grace, they that have nothing may get all things. They that deserve wrath may obtain mercy. They that are cast out and condemned at the court of justice may be acquitted and freed from all sentences and be adjudged to eternal life by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. 
And so we have the mystery of God's absolute sovereignty. We have the mystery of full and complete human responsibility. And if a minister is faithful, he will preach both. Because they are ultimately resolvable in the mind of God and they are both revealed in sacred scripture. God is absolutely sovereign. If you're saved, it's because of his sovereignty. But also, the sinner who has departed from God is responsible to return to the God from whom he has departed, even though incapable. You know, Charles Spurgeon, in a right sort of way, scratched his head over this. He said, you know, I would preach sermons that were just calculated to win lost men to Jesus. They were evangelistic sermons. They were, they were written for the purpose and preached for the purpose of actually bringing men and women and children to faith in Jesus. And sometimes no one would come. And then he said, I would preach the sovereignty of God and electing grace. And all these people would come to faith in Christ. Now why? I think I can tell you why. Because the preaching of the sovereignty of God as found in this text this morning is also by God himself calculated to bring us low, to help us to understand I have no work that I can bring, that I have nothing to contribute to my acceptance with God, that indeed if I am saved, it is all together by grace. And God opens that heart in whom he is working, and that man cries out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Will someone here cry out this morning, God be merciful to me, a sinner? If you cry out in faith, you will not be turned away. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So here is what Jesus said. Why don't we read these verses 21 and 22 again? In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then... Turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And I can say to you, people of God, blessed are your eyes who see this morning, for you see, especially with a completed scripture, what the saints and prophets of old Long to see and did not see. So here it is. I extend the gospel call generally to everyone within the hearing of my voice. As a minister of the gospel, I call upon you to be reconciled to God. The gospel door is open. If you come, It is because of free grace and grace alone. So you walk through the door, those of us who have, and we see on this side of the door, up above the door, 
whosoever will. God changes my will so that I want to go through the door, and I go through the door. Whosoever will, I walk through the door, and then I walk through the door, and then I turn around, and I see on the other side of the door, chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. That's the truth. And what a truth upon which to dwell as we enter together in a new year. God, your Father, who loves you, is completely sovereign. I call upon you to delight yourself in him. No matter your circumstances, no matter your troubles, to be able to say absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. And God's people said, Amen.